Lord God, Heavenly Father, teach us to so love your kingdom that we hate the things of our life in comparison, that we willingly take up our cross and follow you, willing to die to all the things that we desire, that we might serve your kingdom with our very lives. And let us do this willingly and lovingly and cheerfully, for we have a Savior who gave himself for us, that we might be in him and that we might enjoy the fullness of life with you now and even forevermore. So as you read these words of John, let us see that Savior Jesus crucified for us, risen to give us life and returning that we might be joined with him to live with you. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, John 4, like I said, we're in the middle of this, well, we're towards the end of the woman at the well section. And we have had this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. We covered two main topics, right? We covered marriage and worship. And that was one of the main reasons we did that, because the Samaritans were considered half-breeds because of their intermarriage and their worship that involved not pure worship of Yahweh in the wrong temple, okay? So Jesus and the Samaritan woman had this curious conversation. Um, remember, how did it all start? It all started with a, a question about... Marriage. Well, before marriage, water. They're at a well. Someone's thirsty. Someone's giving drink. If you would have asked me, I would have given you living water, which is funny because Jesus is actually the one that asked for a drink. So we get this whole weird thing going on. So all of that, all of that stuff is going to be recapitulated or restated again as we re- as we conclude the story. Okay, so any questions? Yes, Susan. In the recap, yeah. it reminded me we're still dealing with the same issues today. Yeah. Yes, we are. Very the good. Marriage and <coughs> uh-huh. Yeah, so, so we're still dealing with all the same things, especially today. Um, I just heard this last night. <laughs> it, the, the idea of Polytheism? That doesn't even look right to me. What did I do wrong? Is that how you spell it? Okay, it just looks strange today. Polytheism or or um, probably more... Um, hmm, probably more prevalent in our society today. It's not just polytheism, worship of many gods, but the idea that there is no one correct way to worship or believe in God. Right, so the more prevalent idea today um, than polytheism, which is the worship of many gods, is that there is only one God. There's just many paths, right? So the you know the Oprah idea that there's a God up there on the top of the mountain, and we're just all climbing it through different means, and that your Christianity is your means, but Buddhism is another means, and Hindu is another means, and Islam is another means. But at the end, we're all getting to the same top of the mountain and we call that top of the mountain God right so that's kind of the prevalent way that most people in our world would like to think okay this is the coexist bumper sticker this is the you know tolerance idea this is the what's right for you is right for you what's right for me is right for me idea it's all kind of in this 
this whole realm of thought of God is generic and therefore the ways to him might be specific, but we can't say they're mutually exclusive, right? So does that sound, does that kind of what you hear? Yeah, so so one of the ways that, um, well, one of the ways that polytheism um, is actually very prevalent in our world today, and I, and I want you to listen for this, is, and I just heard this the other day too, is that the universe wills that this happens. Huh? And you go, when did the universe get a will? I mean, this is the big thing in evolution, right? Is that, well, evolution wants progress. So everything evolution does is toward, and you're going, when did evolution become a person? You see, whenever you personify a scientific theory, why are you personifying that scientific theory? Well, gravity is pulling everything. What? Do you understand what gravity is? Gravity can't pull. Right? Because what do we do? We personify our scientific theories so we don't have to say the word God. As a matter of fact, I grew up thinking all of these things, these trees and all this kind of stuff, they keep doing what they're doing because of Mother Nature. Well, guess what I found out? Mother Nature is a euphemism for God. We just don't want to say it. So we'd rather say the universe. We'd rather say nature. We'd rather say mother nature, rather say evolution. Well, but then you come to church and you say, I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. Well, who's, what is he doing? Did he just make it? Did he walk away? No. He daily and richly. Come on, is there a Lutheran in the house? <laughs> right. He daily and richly provides, right? So, so what happens is, it's not just explicit religious talk. It's actually the way that our society just moves our vocabulary, moves our thinking away from God as an exclusive being revealed in Holy Scripture. And we just say, well, there's generic things out there. There's generic higher powers. There's generic forces. And, and we label them things that are explicitly non-specific toward God. Okay. Good luck with that. Knock on wood, that'll work out well for you. We have to work. See, and that's the problem, is, is we, even these subtle little things like knocking on wood, good luck. Well, you think there's this thing called luck out there that you either get good or bad from? Well, if I get you luck, it's all bad. That's how rough my life is. And you're like... You actually believe in a spiritual force called God. And so that's really where this, this hits our world, is that we're all tempted to move away from the biblical teaching of who God is and to accept that our society's really um, generalization of God. There's a lot of different ways to talk about it, but, but it's, it's moving away from a specific God that, that exists as a being and again, we know how to talk about God, right? There's one substance and three persons. 
and we don't divide the substance nor confuse the persons, right? That's the God we're talking about. And the persons are Father, Son, that's the God we're talking about, right? So even when we say the word God, we don't think generic God. We think God meaning Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, the second person of that trinity, right? One person, two natures, right? Who died and rose to forgive our sins. That's the God we're talking about, right? Susan, is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, so this is a big deal. And we won't, we'll leave marriage alone for a different time. Okay? So, yeah, this is very pertinent in today's world, and this is very much what we're, we're um, up against in some ways. Steve? Does it kind of uh, cover... There's no responsibility or law with that. It's anybody's law. Well, that's so the fun thing. It's a way to put fig leaves on our conscience. So, so that's... To say, hey, I'm not guilty. Well, or I don't I don't have to be guilty of anything. I can be guilty of things if I would like. If that works for me, that's good. But if, if this whole guilty for law thing doesn't work, I can just find a way that makes me not have to deal with such things. So yeah, a lot of the, the, the motivation for why we're embracing this is is very long and varied and deep and, and terrifying. But yeah, a lot of it is simply therefore I'm not accountable. If God can be whoever I want him to be, and at the end everyone's cool, then really there's no reason to be moral. Which, we can have a whole discussion of morality and where this all comes from. All I have to do is accept God into my heart. Yeah, whatever that is. And that's the thing, is is your heart accepting God, all those words are just meaningless. They're, they're whatever you want them to be at the time. Which is kind of, which really means that, that the arrows don't actually point to God. It's actually this. Me. As long as it all works for me, then guess who has to adjust? God. God doesn't have the right to tell me or to define himself. I get the right to define him and to tell him what's up. Well, that means that I actually believe that I'm God. Which is kind of the whole point. Right? Okay, you guys are bored. So, let's read. John 4, 27 to 38. Let's read. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which I did not labor. 
Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Okay, thank you very much. See? Makes sense, doesn't it? All right, number one. What does the woman admit when she tells others about Jesus? He knows everything about it. Yeah. And so is she's like, yeah, he knows all my good qualities, all the talents and gifts I have. Is that what she's saying? Yep. Yeah, her sins. Okay, so um, one of the fun things is, is when we talk about Jesus, what are what position do you have in all this? He's talking to us. This is talking to us. Yeah. Right. So when you go and tell others about Jesus, are you telling them because you're the perfect example of what it means to be a Christian? Nope. <laughs> are you going to tell them about Jesus because you don't need Jesus? You're going to tell them about Jesus because because you're a sinner, just like they are. Have you ever tried this for, as a witnessing tool? Come meet a man that's told me how awful I am. He knows every awful thing about me. And he loves me. He knows every awful thing about you, even the stuff that you want to admit to yourself or anybody that you love. He knows it all. And the conclusion is, he loves you. He loves you. Come meet him. Let me tell you who he is. Let me show you who he is. That is a lot of people, when you try to talk to them about it, they want to think. They, their first reaction is, you Christians all think you're perfect. Right. And it's hard to get beyond that because... So what do we say in response? I'm not perfect, I'm just... Saved. I'm just forgiven or saved. And they go, that's just as bad. That's, that's or just as awful. Or they'll say the church is full of hypocrites. Right. Right. So right. So and it, to, to which I say, yep. we'll make room for yeah. one more, right? So it's no problem. Yeah, don't, we, we, you, you'll fit in at my church. We're, everybody there is a sinner. Right? They can, they can wear the, the pastor's clothes if they want. They're still sinners too. See, and that's the point is we don't ever walk up and say, Come meet Jesus, you should be like I am because I'm perfect. No, we say, come meet a man who knows everything I've ever done. Right? Well, you Lutheran, you're so negative. You walk in, the first thing you say is, I have four miserable sons. You say, yes, that's exactly right we say that. Because that's why I'm in the presence of God. Not because I deserve to be there, because he's called me there as a sinner. And he said, this is the place where sins are dealt with. Right? And how does he deal with your sin? He takes them upon himself. He takes them upon himself, he dies on a cross, and he removes them from you. And he says, now you are children of the Father. You are set free. You are forgiven. You are loved. We don't have to let play games and say, well, God will love me if I don't tell him all my sins. God, you guys will like me better if you, if you pretend that I'm perfect. No, no, no. We don't play those games because they don't actually help. We come before God and we say, look, here's the deal. Thought, word, deed. All messed up this week. I haven't loved you with my whole heart. I haven't loved my neighbors as myself. I deserve from you temporal and eternal punishment. That's what I deserve. 
and I have no right to come before you except because of the mercy that is found in your Son, Jesus Christ. For his sake, and for his sake alone, have mercy on me. And every time you pray to the Father that way, in the name of Jesus, what is his response? Every time. Forgiven. You are forgiven. Not because you're so wonderful, not even because of your confession. You're forgiven because of Jesus. Right? That's our hope. That's our hope. See, we don't want a generic God. We need that God. The one who comes to us and says, because of this, you are free. And that freedom will last forever. There will be a day when you come to worship and you don't confess sins. Because you won't have any. You'll live forever in the presence of God with one another, right? Loving God with your whole heart and loving neighbor as yourself, right? Does that make sense? And that's why the church longs for that day. So we'll live forever in bliss. Today would work. I'm free. I can clear my schedule. Okay, but, but I think this is striking also is, remember, all the stuff you've heard about this story, all the sermons you've heard in this text, always say, oh, she came to the well in the middle of the heat of the day because she was so ashamed to be with other people or she was an outcast from her society. Well, then she walks into town after meeting Jesus and what does she do? She starts talking to everybody in town. And all of a sudden she has no fear because the point of her conversation is not about her, it's really about Jesus. Come meet a man. Like, well, you know a thing or two about men, don't you there, Missy? And she goes, yeah, come meet a man who knows everything I've ever done. Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the Savior? Come meet him. You ought to come. Okay? So number two, how is this discussion of food parallel discussion of water? So the disciples walk up. This is great. <laughs> And they're like, Rabbi, eat. And he goes, oh, I have food that you have no idea about. My food is the will of the Father. How is this like his discussion with the woman about water? Living water. Right, living water instead of the water from the well. And she's like, you're weird. I don't know what you're talking. What do you mean living water? And she still thinks there's other water somewhere else, like, you know, a different spring or something you have to draw from. And they're like, well, did someone else bring him food? <laughs> see, it's, and, and what, what you want to see in this is that John, who, by the way, was in which crowd? The author of the gospel was in which crowd? He's here. He's one of the disciples who didn't get it. He's one of the disciples who didn't get it. When did John get it? According to this book, when does he get it? 
after his death and resurrection, right? After the death and resurrection of Jesus, they go, oh, well, okay. See, that's what you were talking about. I didn't get that at all. We get this explicitly in chapter 2. Jesus is like, we'll destroy the temple and I'll raise it in three days. And John tells us they had no idea what he was talking about until after the resurrection. They go, oh, that's your body. See, three days, temple, rising. Makes sense now. But before, they're going, I don't know. See, and so John is actually one of these disciples who doesn't really get it when all this happens. But what's happening is Jesus is moving the discussion and I know this isn't popular sometimes, he's moving the discussion from earthly needs to what God is doing in his kingdom. And what you're going to find out is that Jesus actually believes this stuff. That there's food that's more important than what you eat. And why would Jesus think that? Well, he's God. He knows things we don't. But, but from, from the scriptures, why would he think that? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy. There's one I own into a lot. That's the fifth book of Moses. So the fifth book of the Bible. Go back to the very beginning of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. This is a verse you all know. I'm just showing you where it's located. Well, you know part of the verse. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you do not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See? You know that, don't you? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, you guys don't necessarily know it from this context. Where do you know it from? Temptation. The temptations. And where would you find that? Go to Matthew. That's the easiest one. Where do you find the temptations in Matthew? Matthew 1 is the genealogy. Matthew 2 is Christmas story-ish. Matthew 3 is Baptism, right? You guys don't know Matthew? Come on. All right, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. It's one of those easy ones, Matthew 4, 4, I think. Isn't it Matthew 4, 4? Yeah, there you go. Matthew 4, 4. What's going on here? Satan, okay, after Jesus is baptized, he takes a vacation. He's like, I've, okay, I've got the baptism thing out of the way. I need to get away. No, that's not what happens, actually. The Holy Spirit throws him out. This is a, one of the strangest verses in Scripture. The Holy Spirit throws him out into the desert, <laughs> which is really weird. In order to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. Okay, so we're recapitulating the history of Israel here, wandering in the wilderness for 40 days, just like the 40 years, being tempted. And... Satan comes to Jesus and says, well, if you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And what does Jesus say? Yeah, then he quotes Deuteronomy 8. Okay? So this is Jesus saying, no, 
Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he's gonna he's alluding to this in John four. Okay, he's not necessarily just quoting, he's actually kind of alluding to it. And go to John six. So we're in John four. Go to John six. John, well, let's just go to John six thirty-five. It's the most, it's the easiest. The whole, the whole chapter is part of it, but well, you know, it's John. Let's just, we, you can always back up and read more. So let's go to John six thirty-two, and then we'll go, we'll end with thirty-five or thirty-six, you know, thirty-seven. So John, John six thirty-two. Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven," which is weird because it says in the Bible that you know Moses did this stuff. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They say, that sounds awesome. Sign us up. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay? So, John 4 talks about thirsting and hungering. And guess what? Jesus is the living water and he's the bread. And then in John 6, he's going to say, did you guys not get this in John 4? This is actually the way the Gospel of John works. If you read it, you read it in circles. You're like, hey, he already told us this. It's back here. Okay? Or he said this over here and over here and now he's putting it together. So what what's happening is discussion with the disciples is they're still fixated on they went to McDonald's ordered a bunch of Happy Meals they brought him to Jesus and he's like they're like aren't you hungry and he's like yeah I have read this better than that and they're thinking ah we should have gotten pizza of course there's better bread than that but he's like no no, no. the the will of, to do the will of my father is the bread that that I'm talking about okay. Right. So what John's what John's gospel does is he highlights how Jesus kept saying these things over and he's like, he said it over there when we went to the woman of the well, then he said it over here when he's teaching the Jews, and he says it over here when he does this. So John writes his God, he constructs the words and the way he tells the story in such a way that these these recapitulations of these sayings and themes in the ministry of Jesus are brought out for the reader. So he's looking back going, oh yeah, Jesus did it over here, he did it over there, he does it over there. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke are more concentrating on he told parables here, he did a miracle over here, and that's the, that's the way they're throwing the narrative together. But John is more interested in going, I think he said this several times, right? So he's going to construct around these speeches and these incidents that bring out these sayings of Jesus. See, you don't have parables in John. And you don't have nearly as many miracles. You have seven signs, but you don't have all these. You have no casting out of demons. See, like he's, he's just bringing out more of the speeches and, and the incidents that, that the speech was given in order to address. It's just a different way to construct the Gospels. Does that make sense? But yeah, John is... John is not making up words for Jesus to say. <laughs> He's just writing them down in such a way that they're connected. So you see the connections. <coughs> I had a class that I 
Nichols. Yeah. And he used to say the Gospel of John spirals around and around, and right. then eventually it comes back to the beginning. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. And 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 this is what everyone says: the Gospel of John is is this. And then all of a sudden you just—it's a big cross. And it's it's just and the same as the first John is this way, and and the the thing that nobody gets is Revelation is written that way too. And once you get that, Revelation is that easier to read because it's not. It's not consecutive stories. They're the same story over and over and over and over and over. So what is it? Seven bowls of wrath? Yes. Is it seven trumpets? Yes. Is it that? Then that? No, 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 no. It's the same thing. It's the same period of history recapitulated over and over and over and over and over. Okay? We read it that way. It makes total sense. We read it as strung together in a, in a chronological sequence. You get all these crazies saying, well, it's got, this has got to happen. And then you're going, how does that work? Because in this, the entire earth is destroyed. Now we have the earth again over here being destroyed again. They have again over here being one-third. And it doesn't actually make any sense. But when you read it like this, you go, oh, okay. So he's saying, well, you could look at it this way. That's one way to look at it. Or you could look at it this way. It's another way to look at it. Right? That's the way John writes. It's actually a way a lot of people write. You just don't know it. Some of us even teach that way. <laughs> You're just saying the same thing every week. I only know one thing. Okay? So, number three. So what is the will of the Father? Go back to John 4. My food... In verse 34, John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So what is the will of the Father? Yes, to save his people. How is he going to do that? That. That's the goal. Okay? Whether you like it or not, this is the message of the New Testament. Is that God's will to save his people is accomplished here. The entire Old Testament points to it. The entire New Testament points to it. That is God's plan to save his people. That's it. And can you do that? No. Can the prophets do that? No. The only one who can accomplish salvation that way is the one who is God and man in one person who totally fulfills the law of Moses, right? Lives perfectly according to the will of the Father so he has no sins to die for and yet he dies for the sins of the whole world and in this act, God says, the world is now reconciled unto me. So if you want to get in on that reconciliation, this needs to be for you. How do you get this to count for you? Word and sacrament. Good. That's the way you get it. But what do you get in word and sacrament? How do you get what Jesus did to count on your account? Faith. We got you got to do good stuff. 
You got a good, do you got a good, do enough good stuff where God says, okay, now I'm happy enough with you all kind of towards your account. And you say, well, how much good stuff is that? You said, well, all the good stuff. And you go, it'll never count for in my account. And Luther went, I am so dead. And then he read Romans and he went, wait a minute, it's by grace, grace through faith because of what Christ has done. It's not about me. Not only did God send his son to accomplish this, he's also the one who gives it to you as a free gift. And he says, trust in Christ, believe on his name, right? Have faith in him, and it all counts yours. You go, well, I can't even, I'm not even good enough to believe. And he goes, okay, I'll give that to you too. The Holy Spirit will take care of giving you faith. Well, how do I get this Holy Spirit? Well, let's see. I'll give you my word. You can get that in hearing the word, reading the word, right? You can get it through the waters of baptism, and you can eat and drink it in the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper. All of it, given freely for you, right? So when you come together on Sundays, I suggest that that whole gathering be about receiving from him the word, and the sacraments. And then because you're polite people and he gives you good stuff, you respond by saying, thank you. Thank you. Right? <clears throat> and because he's so wonderful and gives you such nice stuff, not only do you say thank you, but you also love him. And he says, great, love me with your whole heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? You see how it works? So that's the will of the Father. Now, this is really funny. Again, this is the way John does stuff. He does it on purpose. Look at verse 27. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Well, that's a strange word, seek. When did we hear that word seek? In this chapter, just a couple of verses before. Like verse 23. The hour is coming now here when the true worship of the Father and Spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people. Well, guess what he found? He found such person in the Samaritan woman. The Father found exactly what he was seeking. A worshiper. You mean her? Yeah. That that one right there. You mean the sinner who isn't a Jew and who is guilty of all these things? You mean her? Yes, that's the one the Father's seeking. And he found her. And all of a sudden you realize the whole story is not that the woman is thirsty, but that Jesus is thirsty. And what does he want? He wants her. He wants her to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And how does she do that? Come see a man who told me everything. I think he's the Messiah. See, when she puts her faith in Christ as who he is, 
the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the one who speaks for God, then she is the kind of worshiper the Father is seeking. You mean a woman who's been married five times and now sleeping with somebody who isn't her husband? That kind of woman? You mean a Samaritan? The disciples are going, uh-uh, I do not, that does not work. And Jesus says, yeah, her. Because she believes who I am. Right? Yeah? Do you see how that works? And again, this is the way John is constructing his gospel so we see these things working. The other thing is, um, just real quick, just in case you were wondering. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went back into her town. Yeah, why did she have a water jar? Because she was... Is she thirsty now? Nope. Because she had water? Because she's got something better. Right? And she's going back into town, not with her water jar full, but with the gospel of Jesus Christ on her lips. She's gotten something better than water. When did we last meet water jars that were filled with something better in the Gospel of John. The wedding at Cana. Now, just for a second, just because just, just you're nice to me and you like me. Go to, no, you don't have to like me. You just have to be nice. Go to verse 46. John 4, 46. John 4, 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made water wine. See, I'm not just saying John is writing it this way for you to remember. He's actually doing this to say, hey, water jar. Water jar. Right? They were filled with water. They became wine. She wanted this water. He gives her living water. Get it? Are you getting it? So now all of a sudden you have all this water and in John 3, the only way to enter the kingdom is by water and the Spirit. Which sounds a lot like baptismal words. So yeah, all this wetness, (laughs) we know where the wetness is, right? When you need water and God, you're thinking baptism. So yeah, all these texts are driving us to baptism, right? To the place where we are washed in this living water and receive the Holy Spirit. So yeah, this is all kind of tied in this baptismal imagery. Okay, so now going down um, in chapter, in back to chapter 4, verse 35 and following. Talk about all this working and harvesting and stuff. So number 4, who, who labors? The Holy Spirit? Jesus? Might as well bring them all in. The Father. Okay? So God is at work. God is at work through Jesus to do what? To save. Okay? This is what's going to happen here. Now, who gets to reap what's been sown? The disciples. So when you, pretending the disciples work for the church today, when the church receives a new member 
by conversion, baptism or something like that, or hearing the word or whatever, we say, look how awesome we are as a church. It must be because of our programs. They came to our church because we have such a good location. By the new library. New roof. New roof. That's why they came. Look at how hard we worked to get that one new member. Yeah, yes. No. Who worked? The Spirit. Who gets the credit? God does. This morning it happened again. I don't know if you guys were there. Well, some of you were, some of you weren't. But I stood up in the middle of, you know, several people who all said, I believe in God. Not generally. I believe in God the Father. I believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus' death and resurrection is what saves the world. I believe that He's going to return one day and we're all going to live forever with Him. And I went, in this world, you guys believe that? Are you insane? It must be because of the Bible class instruction. (laughs) Right? And it's always, we're always tempted to say, see how hard we've worked to do this? No, 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 no. Every time someone confesses Christ, it's because who's at work? The Holy Spirit. And so we always give all the honor and praise to Him. Right? Now get to work. And that's, the, that's the, the reality of living out our life in Christ is that because He's always at work, what do we do? What did you hear today in the Gospel lesson? You take up your cross and you follow Him. Never to get praise and glory for yourself, but because of the one who has taken up His cross and done everything for you. Now you work hard knowing it's always his, his, to his credit and he's the one actually doing the work, but you work hard. You work hard today. You find a way to love your spouse. You find a way to love your neighbor. You find a way to live in Christ, right? You work hard. And when they see your good deeds, they'll glorify your Father in heaven. And that's the way it ought to be. Not to us, O oh Lord. Not to us be the glory. Does that make sense? Yeah. And the temptation. Yep. All Jesus' response to Satan always starts out with, "Is it written?" Right. And when we're in any interaction with the uh, disciples, apostles, or the lady, he doesn't point to the scriptures. He, is, he, is there a difference there in, in who he's addressing? <laughs> <laughs> For another time. Okay. No. This is a good time. This is one of the themes that I've actually been, been tracing through the Gospel of John. This, um, so I'm glad you asked because it's good to review it. Um, one of the things the Gospel of John is writing about is, is... Okay. Let's review. At the end of the Gospel of John, what's the point of the book? John 20, 30, and 31. That you may believe that Jesus... Is the Christ, the Son of Living God, and, or Son of God, and by believing have life. So this thing we're wanting you to believe is not a matter of opinion or take it or leave it. This is a matter of life or death. So we want you to believe the truth about Jesus so you can live. That's the point of the gospel, right? The gospel writer said, 
I wrote this so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. By believing this, you may have life in his name. Now, that means everything in this book is trustworthy and true in the apostle's mind so that you can read it and, re and have the correct belief in God for all of eternity. Y'all? Yeah? So he's not going to waste any words. He's not going to say anything wrong. It is trustworthy. Now, he's going to say, you need to believe the correct words about Jesus so that you can have eternal life. Because you believe false things about Jesus, you will die. So, I'm going to tell you who you can listen to. That's the Gospel of John. The first person you can listen to in the Gospel of John is... John the baptizing John. You can listen to him. Why? Because he's the voice in the wilderness crying out and making a prayer away for the Lord. Because Isaiah said, listen to him. Why? Because he's the one that God sent to prepare the way. And guess the other thing you didn't believe him about? Because they said, are you the Christ? And he went, yeah, give me your money. <laughs> no, they came out and said, are you the Christ? He went, nope, I'm not. So he told the truth. And he said, well, I said, well, what are you doing Messiah type stuff? And he goes, well, I'm here to prepare the way for the Messiah. Then it was the Messiah. He goes, I don't know. I don't know. Somebody in your midst. It's the one that the Holy Spirit's going to come on. And, and, and then he's like, oh, I saw it happen. Now I know who it is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And his disciples said, so we're not going to follow you and we're going to follow him because I'd rather have the actual Messiah than just the forerunner of the Messiah. And John said, go, go. That's the right thing to do. Go. And so John says, the author of John says, you can listen to this guy. Because he's telling you the truth about Jesus. And throughout then, what we're going to find is that you can listen to him because he agrees with what we call the Old Testament scriptures. Okay? So the other thing we're going to listen to, we're going to listen to John, we're going to listen to the Old Testament scriptures. Why? Because the God that Jesus is talking about is the same God that's in the Old Testament. It's not a different God. It's the same God. And Jesus and John both believe that the Old Testament scriptures are the word of God. So, if they believe that and they're both trustworthy, so should you. So when you read the Old Testament, you're reading what? God's word. Okay? And everything you do is going to be in accordance with that word. Okay? Who else can you believe? Yeah, we're going to get him last. Who else can you believe other than Jesus? You can believe John, the author. You can believe him. Because he's, he's going to write in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures, the witness of John the Baptist, and the words of Jesus. You can trust him. Right? These are written that you may believe. Now, there's a problem of this dude named Jesus. And what you find out is that Jesus is trustworthy. Now, this is the answer to your question. Because every word he speaks is the word of God. Not just when he's quoting the Old Testament. But every word Jesus speaks is the word of God. Because he is the word of God. Because he is the word of God. Okay? So this goes back to John chapter 1, when the whole thing starts off, and we're going, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Was God. And, so the, and then 114, the word became flesh. 
And so now when Jesus speaks, he's Yahweh himself speaking the word, and he is the word. So the whole gospel is saying, listen to Jesus because he is the word of God in flesh. And so when you guys came to church this morning, you were sitting there, we got through the whole confession and absolution and the prayers and the, and the hymn, and then we sat down, and then we heard some reading, and then all of a sudden the, the seminary was like, all right, we better stand up. We've got to say some hallelujahs, and we've got to read the Holy Gospel. And with our bodies, we confess that when Jesus speaks, it's the Word of God. Because he is the word of God. See? And so now when we say when we say the word, we don't just mean a book. Right? We mean this this book, but we also mean the word in flesh, his name is Jesus. And then we say why you think he doesn't quote the Old Testament because well, he does quote, but, but the point I'm making to Tom's question is he doesn't have this formula of where Jesus says, as it says in the Old Testament, over and over and over. He does sometimes. But when he doesn't, he'll still speak truths that allude to things of the Old Testament. And what John is saying is you're reading the Word of God. In the words of Jesus, you are reading the Word of God just like you were in the Old Testament. That's actually his point. And isn't the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew is talking specifically to the Jews who would have had a really would have known the Old Testament. Right, so he makes it explicit more. He will say, as it says in the Old Testament. That's where you're going to find that a lot. Matthew's going, no, 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 no. Now, this isn't weird to you. Micah said this, right? This isn't weird to you. This is in Isaiah. This is in Jeremiah, right? This is in Moses. So Matthew wants to stop. He almost interrupts his story. He's like, no, 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 now, hold on. The reason Jesus did this was because Isaiah said he was going to do it. Right? Now, the interesting one is Luke. Luke is the weird one. Who is Luke written to? Theophilus. Yeah, Theophilus. But most people think that Luke's audience was primarily not Jewish, but Greek or Gentile. But here's the thing. Luke, and, and you can check this out, Luke writes the most like the Septuagint. Okay. Remember the Septuagint. Yeah, that was supposed to get asked and it didn't work. So we'll try again. I was actually thinking in Greek. I'll be honest. The Septuagint or the LXX is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was around 250 BC. That's 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 mostly true. Okay. So um, the Old Testament was written when. When did Moses live? Was that? Long time ago. That's exactly right. Okay, so the easiest way to do dating the Old Testament is this. And these aren't, you, I mean, you can argue with me all the dates if you want, but this is the easiest way to think about it. Abraham, 2000. Moses, 1500. Okay? Most people date the Exodus to 1446 BC. So if you do 1500 for Moses, it's a nice round date. Okay, so 1500 BC, this is BC, that 1500 is before Christ, okay? So if you're thinking the Torah is around 1446, and it's written in what language? Hebrew. There's a little bit of Aramaic in there, like Daniel 
four through or two through seven, two verse four through seven. Um, there's, it's in Aramaic, and there's some in Ezra, and there's a little bit of in Jeremiah, and there's a, actually a verse or two in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy. That's in Aramaic, but that's okay. It's mostly in Hebrew. So um, the, when Alexander conquered the world in 333 BC, right? So 333 BC, Alexander, the really pretty good, conquered the entire world for the Greek Empire, and Greek, all the cool kids started speaking Greek. Okay, all the cool kids started speaking Greek, and so they wanted a Greek copy of the Old Testament, and so in about 250 BC, about, they translated the Old Testament into Greek. That's called the Septuagint. Okay, and that was done, there's a long story about it, but that's basically the Bible that the New Testament writers read and quoted. Now they did some Hebrew too, but basically... That's the Bible they had in their hands and were, were reading with a Greek-speaking world. Okay? Now, the whole point of this is Luke wrote in imitation of the style of the Septuagint. If you read the Gospel of Luke and you read the Septuagint in Greek, you'll be like, hey, he's writing like this. It's amazing how he does it. So Matthew is the one that's going to stop at every point in the story and be like, now you realize this is what happened. This is, he did this because the Old Testament says he's going to do it, right? But Luke, is, Luke composes his narrative in such a way that Jesus almost becomes an Old Testament character. He almost becomes a part of the Old Testament story, right? And Luke is the one that says in Luke 24, 44, that everything that was written about Jesus in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, that's the Old Testament, was fulfilled in what Christ did. See, so Luke's Gospel, from a different way, says when you read the Old Testament, and he's talking to people who probably are reading the Septuagint more than the Hebrew, he's saying you're reading the story of Jesus. Right? Mark is kind of in the middle of those two. He's literally in the middle but remember Mark is actually Peter's preaching written down okay now if you want to look more into Luke's gospel um, one of the really cool theories is that that Luke wrote his gospel um, for Paul to use as he went around his missionary journeys and then Mark was used by Peter as he went around and you know that kind of stuff so it's kind of cool and then John was like you know good try guys here's the gospel Right? No, he didn't. That's not. That part isn't true. Well, I like it that way. But all right, we did not get as far as we're supposed to. Of course. <laughs> you need to start saying we're going to get through one section. I need to say we're going to try to finish up question number one. Right. And then if we get to two, we're we're ahead of you. All right. Well, I'll come back next week and we'll see if we can finish chapter four. We'll see. All right. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are God who works, works to save us, to forgive our sins, and to give us eternal life. Teach us to work hard in your kingdom, to sacrifice all things that our neighbor might know of your love, to sacrifice all things to serve you, to serve your church, and to serve one another with the love of Christ. And Lord, let us rejoice this day that the work has been done, that our salvation is accomplished, and that we live as your children in this place. In Jesus' name we pray.
Thank you all.